Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, How Classical Education Can Preserve Our American Freedoms. Please welcome Dr. Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for that, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. It is so great to see all of you in the audience, those of you watching online. I have a feeling that over the next months and years, that this will be what my communications colleagues call an, an evergreen kind of event. That is to say, thousands, tens of thousands, who knows, maybe more than that, will be paying attention to this because coming from this longtime classical educator, the time has arrived again in world history for classical education. 17 years ago, I'd started John Paul the Great Academy in my hometown in Louisiana at K through 12, Roman Catholic, great book school. It's in its 17th year, full enrollment, 425 students, pre-K through 12. And, and also, after starting that, led another classical school, Wyoming Catholic College, which in addition to teaching horsemanship, also teaches our intellectual tradition as Americans and, and also tells the government to go pound sand, which is very much related to how classical education can preserve our American freedoms. It is such a pleasure to welcome all of you here. I think about the speakers who are here, and I really do mean it when I say it. You have to account for our hospitality here at Heritage. We love all of our guests, but we particularly believe that this panel, or, or these speakers and these two panels, are going to provide a comprehensive view of the ins and outs of classical education, but also the answer to the question, what's at stake in America today, and how can classical schools uniquely provide the solution to all of those problems in this question about what's at stake. And, and ultimately, just with my heritage hat on, you know us well enough to know that our bread and butter is policy. Education policy led by my great friend, Dr. Lindsey Burke, and the best team in the business. We work on every policy area, but ultimately, for 50 years, in addition to our policy work at the federal and state levels, in addition to the, the work we do internationally, heritage cares as much about revitalizing American institutional life. And at the heart of the best aspects of American institutional life, I believe, are classical schools of every faith tradition, of every kind, every size. And I just want you to know before I introduce our first speaker that every single time you in a, a classical school have a challenge, every single time you have an opportunity to grow, every single time you need a friend to stand shoulder to shoulder every single time. Count on the Heritage Foundation because we care that deeply about what you're doing. It is a real honor to introduce our first speaker, someone who is a great patriot, Lieutenant Commander Ali Ghaffari, retired of the US Navy, husband and father of three daughters and two foster children. Ali was born and raised as an atheist and then studied the classics, fittingly, to make his way into the Roman Catholic Church in 2004. He's a career naval officer flying a variety of naval aircraft with his wife, Mary, started independent K-8 classical liberal arts school in the Catholic tradition, Divine Mercy Academy in Maryland. In 2019, the school had 19 students enrolled. In 2022, it had 120. 
That's the kind of success story that all over this country, classical schools are having. And so it is a great pleasure, a great honor on behalf of all of us at Heritage to welcome Ali to the stage. I'm still an absent-minded professor. All of the panelists, please come up as well. You're, you're welcome as well. Thank you, Dr. Roberts. Um, my name is Ali Ghaffari, as he mentioned. And in 2018, we founded Divine Mercy Academy at K-8 Classical Liberal Arts School in the Catholic tradition in Pasadena, Maryland, my wife and I. And I'm really honored to be here with you, and particularly with this group of uh, incredible individuals here who are foremost experts in classical education, school choice, and parental rights. I myself am not an educator. Uh, I, uh, I've told others I have no business being in uh, the education business other than I've been a student in many different types of uh, educational settings. I'm a military officer. I've spent most of my time flying uh, aircraft uh, and some time at the Naval Academy teaching undergraduate uh, level uh, leadership and ethics, uh, and then also um, consulting and doing leadership formation for faculty, staff, uh, and coaches at the Naval Academy. But one of the things I learned in the military is you gotta start off a brief with your military objectives. So I'm gonna give you three things that we hope to accomplish today, and I hope that you take these away with you. The first objective that we want to achieve today is to educate families, teachers, and school administrators, as well as our lawmakers, about the nature and roots of classical education and the benefits of this time-tested methodology for students and faculty. The second thing we wanna to do today we want to inspire parents to take action. We want them to pull their children out of the public schools. We want them to enroll them in classical schools across the country. And we want to, them to engage with the, the administrators of their schools to bring in a classical curriculum. The third thing that we want to accomplish this, we want to encourage lawmakers at the federal and state levels to pursue legislation that supports school choice and parental rights so that American families can have the freedom to choose how they want to educate their children, the next generation of American citizens and patriots. Now, I want to start off with a little exercise for you, a classical exercise. And I'd ask you, if you feel comfortable, just to close your eyes. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a comparison of, of two different mission statements. And I want you to, in your mind, detect which one is a progressive educational mission statement, which one is a classical education statement. So go ahead and you can close your eyes now. And the first image I want you to bring to mind is that of your child and your vision and your hopes and dreams for your child, your children, for their education. Okay, here we go, this is the first one. The three most important ways that this education transforms students is one, to develop a productive workforce, two, to create an informed citizenry, and three, to provide for social mobility. Okay, here's the second one. It is our mission to partner with parents in their role as primary educators to their children, to help their students flourish as disciples of Jesus Christ. Through a Catholic liberal arts education, we foster a love for truth, beauty, and goodness. Under the patronage of Our Lady, we aim to form saints and scholars to live freely, and joyfully in accordance with the truth revealed by God through nature and the Catholic Church. I want you to just sit and reflect on that for a few seconds. Which one do you want your children to be inspired by? Which one do you want your children to be formed by? 
Okay, you can open your eyes now. So the first mission statement I read what belonged to one of the largest public school uh, systems in the country. And the second one was the mission of Divine Mercy Academy. And maybe you felt a visceral reaction. Hopefully you did. You said, I, I want more for my children than to be um, social mobility, uh, which is something that's just nice. Uh, I want more for them than to be, to have job skills. I want them to be flourishing human beings. I want them to be the best version of themselves. The first statement was dry, very utilitarian. There's no mention of freedom, virtue, faith, joy. The second celebrates the child and treats them as a human being, a person with infinite worth and value. So now that we've, you've experienced both of those different missions, I wanna dig a little bit deeper. I wanna define our terms today. That's a good way that we do in classical education. Let's define our terms and make sure we're talking about the same thing. So the traditional educational model, and interestingly, I was on, on uh, the internet today, uh, earlier today and I was looking at the terms and they flipped it. And now what's considered the traditional educational model is actually the progressive model uh, as you're doing searches on the internet. But the real traditional educational model, the model that's been in place for over 2000 years is the classical uh, model. And that goes by different names, depending on who you're talking to. We use classical as shorthand, but it goes by classical liberal arts education, classical education, a great books program, Catholic liberal education, or a liberal arts education. They're all talking about roughly the same thing. The aim of classical education is human flourishing. Classical, the term denotes the roots back in ancient Greece in the classics, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Homer, plus the other great books, think King Arthur, Robin Hood, just good books that have established in the canon uh, of great books across time and in, in space. Moreover, generally there's a discussion of Latin or a learning of Latin, perhaps Greek if you're lucky. But the focus and the goal is to create the best possible human beings that you can, to incorporate virtue, uh, to, to bring wisdom about in, in little human beings as they're growing up to become bigger human beings. And lastly, we want them to become critical thinkers. We want them to understand and then peer through all of the propaganda and the jargon and all of the nonsense that people whitewash either a weak argument or something that they want to push on someone else, all the sales pitch. We want them to be able to peer through that. I want to compare that with progressive education. So progressive education uh, was popularized by John Dewey. He's not the originator of it, but here in America, he's considered the father of progressive education. Uh, and if you're un unfamiliar with him, he was uh, from Vermont uh, and lived in the early 1900s. And his desire was to create a socialist revolution through our educational system. Uh, and so these are the things that he wanted to do with our education system uh, in order to achieve those goals. So. Um, First was, let's emphasize doing rather than learning uh, these th theoretical things about virtue. We want children to be learned how to be servants to the state. There's less memorization. We want them to collaborate more with others on, on projects. We want them to be educated for social responsibility um, instead of for God. We want to select our subject content based upon skill sets that are needed by the state and society. We wanna separate children from their parents to diminish the parental influence on their children uh, in order to indoctrinate, indoctrinate them because we believe that the state is a better parent to children than parents are. We wanna cut off history and the roots in Western civilization so that they are separated from that. We wanna eliminate God from the formation of children. And we want to form these children to be servants of the state and cogs in the socialist or communist economy. 
So there's a very different end in mind for these two different types of educational models. And the thing is, we've all, for, for the most part in this room, have been educated in this second form educational model. And so we don't know any different. We just, it just makes sense to us that I would go to college in order to get a good job, and then I would live the American dream, and I would ha have social mobility. But that is not the purpose of education, and it has not been the purpose of education for 2,000 years. That's a recent phenomena that we're all steeped in at this point in time. Now, my own edu educational uh, background, I went to public schools uh, growing up. I went to one of the top private high schools in the country. Uh, and then I went to one of the, the top um, elite um, you know, private colleges, undergrad schools. Uh, and then finally, I went to a Catholic seminary for my postgraduate work. So I've been steeped in all of this progressive education myself. Um, and I could pass tests with the best of them. You know, it's just tell me what I need to know on the test. I'll memorize, regurgitate, move on, uh, get my A, and then move, and then not have learned a thing in the class that, that I was taking. But the moment in my life where I came into a collision with classical education was a summer on my front porch. Our neighbor uh, was an uneducated man by our, sta uh, our standards. He barely graduated high school. Uh, and he and I got into a discussion. Uh, and what I didn't know was that he had been reading Aristotle uh, and Plato and St. Thomas Aquinas for the last two years. Uh, and I had no prayer in this conversation, this debate with him. And this debate went on over the next eight or 10 months. And I found very quickly that what I thought, I, I prided myself on being a very highly educated man. What I thought was education was nothing. I didn't know anything. Uh, and the true education was in the classics. And he showed that to me. And when we were done wrangling for the next eight months, I said, please teach me. Show me what I need to learn. And we started with Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. We worked our way up through the Western canon. Uh, and I still can't say I'm as educated as I want to be, but I'm getting there. And I feel like I can think critically and see clearly more so, far more so than I ever could before. As a father now of three amazing daughters uh, and foster father, my wife and I, care very much about the education of our children. We don't want them to have the same deficiency in education that we had as well. We want them to become saints, to learn virtue, to be wise, and to be scholars at the same time. And now as a military family, we've been to, we, all across the country, we've seen schools all over. So we've seen the public schools, Catholic schools, private schools. We've always been frustrated that we couldn't quite get the type of education that we dreamed for our children. Uh, and so that led us to starting our own school, uh, Divine Mercy Academy. But as we look around, we live in very strange times. Uh, our schools are more interested in indoctrinating our kids, telling them what to think as opposed to how to think. Uh, and that comes at great risk for our own country as we look uh, to the future of our democracy. Virtues have been replaced by virtue signaling. True education has been replaced by a politicized agenda and in some cases, progressive woke indoctrination. Classic novels have been removed from some of our libraries, classics that maybe even were still in the curriculum when we were growing up, Where the Wild Things Are, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Catcher in the Rye of Mice and Men, 1984. They've been replaced by pornographic novels for our children to consume. A steady stream of politicians bemoaning the lack of an interference or participation of parents in the educational process. They, are parroting John Dewey's separation of parents from their children. Congressman Swalwell from California lamented last year, he said, quote, please tell me what I'm missing here. What are we doing next, putting parents in charge of their own surgeries? 
Clients in charge of their own trials. When did we stop trusting experts? This is so stupid. Uh, Hugh is criticizing the idea that parents should be the primary educators of the children. But I don't blame him. He was produced by the same public school that I was. Uh, he doesn't know history. He doesn't know, for example, that parents were in charge of the educations of our founding fathers. George Washington, James Monroe, and James Madison, for example. The education they received was a classical education, uh, which is why they understood history and why Congressman Swalwell doesn't. When, while COVID, COVID accelerated the concerns of parents across the country, it also prompted them to take action, but not without consequences and resistance. At school board meetings across the country, parents were interrupted, dismissed, silenced, and physically removed, and in some cases, arrested for speaking up for their children. In Loudoun County, just across the Potomac, was one of the most visible examples of parents speaking up and pushing back against progressive agendas, such as the incorporation of critical race theory into their curriculum. We're honored today to have one of the brave parents who stood up to speak out to warn us against CRT's roots in cultural Marxism. Shi Van Fleet escaped the Chinese cultural revolution at age 26 to find freedom here in the United States where she raised her son. She attracted national attention for her passionate speech in front of Loudoun County School Board. She's so passionate about the subject, she's written a book about it called Mao's America, or Survivor's Warning. I'd like to acknowledge her courage and thank her for the wake-up call she's issued to all parents and Americans. Shivan, would you please stand up? Classical education is the antithesis of this wave of progressive socialist-leaning policies that, are see that we're seeing in our schools today. Its hallmarks are the pursuit of truth, beauty, and goodness. Were it not for a chance encounter 18 years ago with an uneducated man, I would never have been educated myself. And were it not for a book I picked out because I was bored to listen to in a long drive uh, across the country with my family, I would never have found out about classical education. And if our schools, both public and private, had remained faithful to our original educational model, classical education, and not had gone far astray, I would, have had to, I would not have spent my adult years starting uh, a classical school for my own kids, Divine Mercy Academy. So last spring, Divine Mercy Academy reached out to the Heritage Foundation to see if we could find ways to help parents across the country to discover the beauty and positive impact of classical education and to inspire them to pursue this powerful educational methodology for their children, to ensure the next generation of Americans are critical thinkers of strong moral character and will understand the gift of our constitution, cherish our American freedoms, and cut through all the noise and dangerous detractors who try to undermine it. I wanna thank again Dr. Kevin Roberts, the entire Heritage team, and our friend Tim Chapman for welcoming our idea and generously giving this, this powerful platform to share this morning's discussion with all of you. And with that, I'd like to introduce our first uh, speaker, Dr. Robert Jackson. Dr. Robert Jackson is a husband and father of five. And for 25 years, Dr. Jackson served to advance liberal education through teaching, scholarship, and administrative activities. His career began in higher education as a professor of English and education at the King's College in New York, preparing future teachers to revitalize the classical model of K-12 education. Then Robert went to work later as the founder of the Institute for Classical Education. And recently, Dr. Jackson founded and leads Classical Commons, a national network of K-12 schools, institutions of higher education, and supporting stakeholders to promote classical, liberal arts education in local communities across the country. 
All right, Dr. Robert Jackson, I'm often surprised when parents come to, to our school and attend one of our open house events and ask me, what is this new thing, this classical education? Can you give us some historical background on the roots of classical education and how it involved to cultivate both wisdom and virtue? Yes, thank you very much, Shelley. It's great to be with you this morning, and it is a delight to be able to spend a little bit of time giving some definition, providing some clarity, hopefully, with these uh, illustrious gentlemen here to my right and left, around the nature of classical, because it begins in the mists of history. We have uh, in our possession great stories, epics, that begin a story that that really does convey to us principles of nobility and virtue. Uh, beginning with Homer and the Iliad and a tale of a drama, really, of great conflict and warfare, the rage of Achilles is how Homer opens up. And I mentioned this poem because of how important Homer was as the founder, as the schoolmaster, Plato referred to him, the schoolmaster of Greece chiefly because he was recounting for his audience in an oral form, a very vital form, what was at stake, why it was that mankind's challenge was constant, the conflicts right, that we, that we face are ever present, and the desire to try to construct a civilization amid those conflicts is an ongoing battle. But it's a battle that ultimately gave the Greeks an opportunity to reflect on history, on the errors that had trans been transmitted or the errors of their past, the tragedies and triumphs of history, in a way that would lead them to consider, to philosophize, as we heard with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, around how to construct a more virtuous society. The desire of the Greeks to produce a polis, a city-state where justice, where truth, where the notion of beauty could be pursued as a people was drawn from that poetic history that Homer handed them. And from that, they began to question the nature and, and to deliberate, to philosophize over the nature of a just society. It is the Greeks both their epic poems and their political philosophy, their ideas and their imagination that inspires classical education. In large measure, because from the Greeks was, uh, was born a Roman civilization, which began to take seriously the ideas and those epic notions of a history and a tradition and instantiate them, to build them into something that would last. And if we fast forward down to the American founding, our founders, all of whom would have read classic texts in the original languages, they styled themselves as Romans as much as anything because they were trying to construct a republic, that is to say, a democratic republic that would represent the people, but would also represent the highest aspirations of a nation. Those founders, though they were not dressed in Roman togas, uh, were certainly trying to transmit a tradition that had been handed down to them. And they did so in the ideals that ultimately came across in our declaration and in the Constitution. As such, I think it's important for us as we're describing classical education to say it does draw upon antiquity, but there is a long-standing journey through 
Christianity and Christendom's stamp upon the pagans through the medieval period as we learn to take seriously how texts are transmitted generation after generation, through the Renaissance and the beginnings of modernity, to understand that ideas continue to develop or flourish under the influence of a tradition that is living. And so classical means that we have 2,500 years worth of experience thinking about what it means to be human, what it means to be virtuous, and how we might order our society toward the common good. And so we look back historically, largely so that we can be prepared to face our present moment. It's conflicts, some of the tragic features of our nature, but also the potential for us to be truly excellent. Classical education thus is dependent upon a historical tradition handed down, but one that has to remain vital and living in our moment. Awesome, thank you, Dr. Roberts. I want to turn now to Father Sirico. Uh, Father Sirico is the spiritual father to hundreds of children across the country. He is the president emeritus and co-founder of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, pastor emeritus of Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and president and founder of the St. John Henry Newman Institute for Catholic Classical Education and Reverent Liturgy. Now, Father Sirico, you come from a world of economics and politics, uh, and then you are plopped into this little school that was failing and what you were told essentially to close it or they didn't care what you did to it. Uh, and so there you came face to face with classical education in a practical sense. Can you talk, us, talk to us about your experience there? Well, thank you, Ali. It's good to be at the Heritage Foundation and to be participating in this discussion. Uh, I have always been involved in pastoral ministry, uh, even though I'm the co-founder of the Acton Institute, a kind of sister institute to the Heritage Foundation and many others, where my concerns were bringing together virtue uh, and freedom, freedom and virtue. Uh, I've always been involved with hearing confessions and going to people's homes and ministering to the sick and the dying, working with AIDS patients and, and the like. And when, uh, now about uh, 12 years ago, I was assigned by my bishop to take over this failing parish. It was slotted for uh, amalgamation into other parishes, as so many across the country are. We had a school. Now, I had never had a school as a priest, never particularly wanted one, never had any background in professional background in education. And it was the last standing school on the uh, west side of Grand Rapids, Michigan. I would call it an inner city school in Grand Rapids. They would call it an inner city school. But I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and this is not inner city by that standard. A largely Polish area, uh, working class folks. And when I took over, there were 69 students in the school. And they went to mass one day a week. And I attended one of their talent events and was appalled at the kind of music that these kids, and the way some of the kids dressed, uh, and the, the kind of in, inattentiveness at Mass I saw. So I, I thought, well, what do we do here? Well, we had a lot of things to do in that parish. But with regard to the education, I said, what we need to do is refound this school. And one of the greatest gifts we had was there was nobody who was willing to fight to keep the school going. The, the, the people had given up on the school, even the people who were in the school had largely given, they were expecting the school to close. So when you don't have anything to fight over, you can really begin anew. 
this is one of my bits of advice. Uh, find dying schools. You're going to have an easier time transitioning them to this model. And uh, I knew the classics simply because of my seminary training and my own heritage as an Italian-American. Uh, and of course, because of my reading in economics and the classical liberal tradition. Uh, but I'd never worked in education, so I thought, well, what do, what do we do here? So I surveyed the land to see what we had in the school and, uh, and in the parish, which was also a dying parish. And it was a great surprise that we had some business people in the school, some people who had taught in classical education. Uh, and I just began working with it. My first decision with the 69 students is that they, and it was the easiest decision, they would go to mass every day. We did that when we were kids. Uh, so we went, invited them to come every day. There was some resistance on the part of the people in the parish. Now all these kids are invading this lazy little morning mass with, you know, 20 older people and, you know, the kids come in and of course they're, and we begin to transform, transform it. Uh, one of the first things I did was began just chanting the Our Father in Latin, and the kids didn't know this, but day after day, day after day, as kids do, they began to pick it up. Then I found, um, after uh, a little while, this fellow who had started classical, came from Hillsdale, and had worked in classical education, he said, you know, I haven't been involved in the parish, but I'm interested in this thing. I said, well, fine, you got it. <laughs> and there was a young man in the parish uh, who I had known, uh, had been a kind of spiritual director for, who was a businessman, finance man. He had, he had gone to seminary for a year, and when they announced that I was going to be pastor, he nudged his wife. He said, this is going to be fun. And uh, I said, Eric, I said, you need to unravel the mystery of the finances of this parish, because I don't know whether we're coming or going. And slowly, business people, parents in the school, and there was a whole chunk of homeschoolers in this parish because this parish had the traditional mass for more than 30 years. So the traditional Latin mass existed, but existed almost as a, um, a separate parish from the rest of the parish. And we began talking with those parents who were homeschooling their children. And uh, slowly, 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 we... I got a, somebody to donate uniforms for all the school, including the teachers, so as to mute any debate about wearing uniforms. Daily mass. And pretty soon, the momentum began to pick up. Others came. We found teachers from Hillsdale College who wanted to work in this kind of environment. And through the generosity of many donors and, of course, the generosity of families who have to pay twice in this country for their children's education, this began to form a culture. From that day in 2012, 2013, to this day, there are now 400 students in that parish uh, in that school the church is filled every day not only with the children and the teachers but the parents who drop the kids off from school stay for mass and the parishioners have grown so it's revitalized the entire parish it revitalized the entire neighborhood that's going on because there's a renaissance in the whole neighborhood now happening not directly attached to our school but to the atmosphere 
if I would say to any religious leader who has an opportunity to form something like this, I would say, look upon education, not as dropping information into kids' heads, but the opportunity to form human beings for the future on all different levels. The intellectual level, certainly, but the aesthetic level, the social level, the moral level. And what's so beautiful about our day, starting with prayer every day, it's silent, generally silent, very quiet. The great challenge in education today and among young people today is the inability to focus. And when they can have silence, when they can use their imaginations, they begin to just grow uh, spiritually and intellectually. You know, uh, I just want to echo what was said. I want to challenge parents who say, we can't do this, we can't afford this. You can't not afford this. Uh, give up the extra car. Give up the vacation. Seriously consider finding a place in a group of parents, especially homeschooling parents, which is a great place to begin to form communities like this. What this is, is an endeavor, an adventure in the formation of a culture. And the culture reinforces itself. We see that in our present culture today. When we look around us, this is a major catastrophe. When people don't know who they are, they don't know what they are. They can't reason themselves out of a brown paper bag, even if they wanted to reason themselves out of a brown paper bag. This is a desperate moment, and institutions like the Heritage Foundation and other aligned institutions are very concerned with this on the political level. We have to be deathly concerned with this on the cultural level. And I'll tell you, having been the president and co-founder of an institute for 33 years concerned with the future, the thing that gives me the greatest hope so when I see those kids at mass in the morning and I project out a generation or two, these kids are going to be able to take their roles in society as writers and doctors and scientists and artists and priests and nuns and teachers and missionaries. They're going to be able to counter the culture that is destroying culture. Um, I want to leave you with just one image you know that Michelangelo and Bramante built the magnificent basilica in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica. And you, you look at that basilica, thousands, millions of people a year see that basilica. Here's one thought to keep in mind. Michelangelo and Bramante never saw that building. They designed it. They conceived it. They had an idea of what could happen. We have to conceive the construction of a culture that promotes life, that promotes families, that promotes decency, that promotes the best in the liberal idea. That is to say the free idea of people being able to think and reason and really provides the grounding for how we can authentically disagree with one another rather than just call one another names or worse, threaten people with violence. I think this is the vision that classical education offers us. It's not the next selection cycle. It's the next generation and the generation after that. I don't ever expect to see the full fruition of this vision, but I'm going to give the rest of my life to ensure 
that it can be a reality in the next generation. Thank you, Paula Sarita. Thank you, Father. Next, I'd like to introduce Dave Goodwin, uh, is a father and husband of three. I'm sorry, husband uh, of, and father of three. <laughs> He's a My wife will be grateful for yeah. <laughs> He's the president of the Association of Classical Christian Schools and the managing director of the Classical Difference Magazine. So Dave, from your perspective at the top of this large organization that oversees over 300 schools across the country. I want you to tell me, what are you seeing on a statistical level? A lot of people come in and say, well, yeah, it's great. You're reading poetry. You're reading the Greeks. But what does it mean when the rubber meets the road statistically? Show me the data. What, what have you learned? Well, thank you, Ali. It's great to be here. Um, I, our association uh, has been around for about 30 years. And so we actually have alumni uh, who've graduated. And um, over the course of that time, um, we have had uh, the occasion to measure things like test scores. And uh, when we put those out, people are always impressed. They're a little skeptical at first, but you walk through a classical Christian school and you can see why uh, the test scores are high. A few years ago, um, we had a, uh, a school approach us because one of the philanthropists that was helping them out said, I'm not impressed with test scores. I want to know how these kids do in life. And so this was a challenge to us to try and answer that question. What does life look like? Because that's what we're promising in the classical Christian world. That's at least the promise we're aspiring to, is that we teach these uh, students how to live the good life. So we um, partnered with the University of Notre Dame and a uh, researcher there in the sociology department to do what we've uh, since called the good soil study. Uh, we surveyed... Um, Five, the the, the uh, university had already done a, a pretty massive study. I think it was like 80 pages um, <clears throat> of questionnaire uh, of alumni, 20, about 23 to uh, 44 years old, so right in that uh, sweet spot of life where everything's happening. And um, they had surveyed five different types of schools, uh, public school graduates, uh, preparatory school graduates. So these would be similar to, I think you attended um, Phillips uh, Academy. Phillip, yeah, Phillips Andover, those types of schools. Uh, charter, uh, I'm sorry, um, Catholic schools, home schools, and evangelical Christian schools. And so we went ahead and tagged on our alumni base to the end of that. Uh, they took a randomized sample and did all the statistical stuff. And so what it produces, this Good Soil Study, for those of you who are here physically, you can pick up this magazine on the back uh, in, the, in all the tables outside, and you'll be able to read through these, because obviously right now we don't have much time to go through this. But we found, in short, that there were drastic differences between the uh, students at classical Christian schools and all other types of education. In fact, it surprised the research team at Notre Dame to the point that they double-checked their numbers and you know, were looking to see um, how, how this uh, was the case. Um, we measured, obviously, college, college and career was one, one piece, but we also measured life outlook. 
the uh, Christian commitment that they had. In other words, are they still attending church? Are they reading their Bible? Um, the Christian uh, life, uh, are they living Christianly? Um, are they traditional and conservative in their, um, in their beliefs? And um, we found a couple of other things in the survey we didn't expect to find um, that tied to the independence of their thinking, how, how, uh, how independent were they of the culture, and then their influence on the culture. So those seven areas are what we measured. Um, and I can't go through it all right now, but I'll just uh, touch on a few of these. So one of the questions, for example, these were attitudinal, some were life outcomes, various things. One of the questions was, um, do you agree or disagree with, I have so much in life to be thankful for? So it was a gratefulness question. Um, the ACCS or our, our alumni were um, far and away the highest, 79% uh, agreed with that statement. Um, I feel helpless dealing with life problems. Uh, almost no, no, no graduates of the ACCS said that. So you can, you can find these statistics uh, outside. 89% of them had close friends that they met with uh, frequently, uh, which was way above the other uh, graduates. 90% um, were still attending church, and um, the they were six times more likely to read their Bibles on a daily basis than the median of all the other uh, forms. I'll just couple, grab a couple of more here. Um, so they had a strong independence of mind, which kind of surprised us a little bit. And this came by correlating multiple attitudinal questions on, on the test. One of them, for example, was that oddly, we, we were surprised by this, that um, more, uh, they were the highest group of all these groups. So you think about the secular schools, the, um, the preparatory schools, they, they knew more LGBT people than, personally than any of the other groups. Yet they were the least likely to uh, say that gay, gay marriage was okay. So they, even though they knew people and had friends who were gay, they did not uh, buy into the idea that gay marriage is okay. So you can see what happened um, in the survey if you pick it up. It's also available online. Uh, you can get it at the uh, classicaldifference.org or classicaldifference.com, either one. Um, so anyway, after we did the survey, it was just briefly after that that I um, <clears throat> ended up uh, working on Battle for the American Mind with uh, Pete Hegseth of Fox News. And one of the, I just wanted to throw in there, one of the things that he came to me with originally, how we got connected was, he was asking, how do we, you know, educate patriots? And um, I had to answer something he didn't really expect, which is why he started asking more questions, which is you don't, that's what the progressives do. They try and teach kids what they are supposed to believe and what they're supposed to know. Classical Christian education trains citizens who can think for themselves and who are good, virtuous citizens. And so that is what started the, the book. It became a New York Times bestseller, but that's how we, um, it's how we found you know, classical education was serving the country. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. All right, our last panelist here is uh, Mike Ortner, who is the married father of six, 
uh, co-founder of Captera, the largest online marketplace for business software. Uh, and award is one of um, the Washington Business Journal's best places to work in incorporated magazines, fastest growing companies in America before selling it and devoting his life to classical education. Now, Mike, you're a business owner, a tech company owner. And, you know, if I'm sitting in the audience, I'm wondering, this is fine and great. My kids can read Plato and Aristotle. They can they can have highfalutin uh, debates with others. But does this really translate to being effective in, in, a, in a job and in a career in their lives? And what's your perspective on that? Thanks, Ali. I guess I'm an outlier here, up, up here kind of like you. Um, so I came into this. So let's back up. When I was, when I think back to when I was 20, 22 years old, I thought I was well educated. Um, I, I went to public school through 12th grade. I'm, I'm from near Philly. It was a you know a top, um, a well a well ranked uh, public school in the suburbs of Philly. Um, AP classes, all of that. You know, some of our top classmates went to you know top elite universities. Um, and if you had, I was very defensive of the fact that I went to public school when I went to Georgetown. And if you had asked me when I was 20, 22, 24, I would have said, well, sure. I felt, I felt like that I was. Um, and when I, so, however, I did have a bit of an awakening. So I, I when I was about 24 and realized, oh my gosh, I, I, I had gone the previous 15 years, um, as I would describe it. Um, school uh, had absolutely crushed any sense of wonder that I had. Um, I learned to do, I did, I got great grades, did great on tests, did all of that, but I truly did not know how to think. I was the guy who thought he could get his way out of the brown paper bag, but I really couldn't. Um, and I, and fortunately I had, an, I had downtime in my mid twenties. I had like just, uh, during slower parts of my career and I started reading again and it was, to make a long story short, I eventually stumbled upon Plato's dialogues. And so here I had gone through college, high school and college, and had never, never read any of Plato's dialogues in their entirety. I think I read like maybe two pages of one in my philosophy class in college. Um, never read Aristotle's Ethics, had never read any of these. Um, and so I had slowly come into this um, from my own personal uh, my own personal intellectual journey. And then when, uh, my wife and I were researching, my wife was researching curriculum. We were going to homeschool our, our kids. Um, we, uh, she was researching these different curriculums and she came up, she kept coming across these classical curriculums and she wanted me to, to, to look at them, to help her, help her decide which, you know, which one to go with. And as I looked at these different, uh, curricula, I, I, I just completely, I took it took a step back and re realized, oh my gosh, this this is what we could have had. Uh, this is absolutely what we should have had to prepare me for the greater intellectual journey that would that would blossom in our as in our teens and twenties. And, and this would be the best preparation and formation for our children. So that was sort of our foray and how we discovered it. And then I'll, I'll fast forward. So I was running, uh, I started this tech company when I was 26 and I ran it for 18 years. And about halfway into it, we, um, I met, uh, I was, I was, I went back to Georgetown for a lecture and I ran into 
uh, uh, the head of school of a local Christian classical school that had been recommended to me by my parish priest uh, as one we should consider. And I just coincidentally ran into him at this lecture and uh, we talked for a few minutes. And then the following Monday, I said, hey, you know, I reached out to him and said, hey, we have a tech internship. We have an internship program. Um, and if you have any students there, I've heard great things about your students. So I'd love to see how actually how they would how they would do at our at our tech company. Feel free to have them reach out to me. And so he did. And lo and behold, about a week later, I got outreach from two uh, two teenagers. Well, first, one, I didn't even know at the time he was only 15 years old. Um, and then his, his brother, uh, followed suit. So we had two kids that applied. And so that summer we had six interns. Uh, we had six interns before them. We had already had our, our intern class. It was, we had six kids signed up for it. And these were, we had an intern director and he was in charge of recruiting all of these kids. And they were all from, uh, they were all college students in their early twenties that were going to top local DC area colleges like William and Mary and Georgetown and UVA, et cetera. And they were all either studying computer science, tech or, or business. And, um, and they were all the like, top students and, and whatnot. He was very excited for the class. And I said, Hey, do you mind taking on these, these two high school kids who have none of that background and, um, twisted his arm a little bit. And he, um, uh, so he took them on. So anyway, we're a month into the summer and I get a late night email, um, from Danny and uh, Danny was my intern director. And he said, Mike, where on, where on the world did you find these, these two kids? And I said, you know, quick email back. It's midnight. Uh, is everything okay? And, uh, he just, I, I really, I should dig up this email. I should have, um, I'll forward it to the group or something later, but basically these two kids are amazing. So here were, they were younger, less experienced, didn't have any of the professional training or anything that the other kids had had. And they were, they were just doing an app. They were, they were our best interns. They were doing an amazing job. And, uh, you know, it was, pretty amazing to see. And I remember putting one of them to the test, the younger one later in the summer, I was working on some project that I found myself working on that I knew I shouldn't have been working on. So I gave it to him and I knew it would have taken me easily a day and a half to do if I did it. And the kid turns it around in a couple hours on a Monday morning and I'm left feeling very humbling experience. <laughs> um, and when I reflect on this, and I reflect on um, the education that they were receiving at this Christian classical school. Here's a school where all, every kid was graduating, having read everything, doing everything from having read the Federalist Papers during ninth grade, or at least, you know, 10 of them during American, uh, Amer American history. Um, I, I read none of them until I became interested in them later on. Um, uh, from the Federalist Papers to Shakespeare to they all read, uh, you know, uh, I uh, Odyssey and I Iliad and Odyssey. Uh, later on, they read five or six of Plato's dialogues. They read Aristotle's Ethics and Politics. They read Dante. They read, you know, Brothers Karamazov, all of these classics. Uh, they all took Latin. Uh, they all learned to compose music. They all learned to sing, um, to play music. Uh, they learned to draw, to paint. Um, they... They all get through quantum mechanics and relativity and physics. They all get through multivariable calculus and uh, linear algebra and advanced math. Things that most of us, you know, I, I was a good student in high school. I got through BC Calc. We touched on multivariable calc at the end. I didn't do any of this other stuff. I didn't touch on it in college. Um, but all of them are getting this in, 
in high school. So literally we were hiring, and from then on we only hired interns from this school. Um, and every summer the, the, our full-time employees were looking forward to who are, who are these characters who are gonna come in this year. Um, so, and it, and it really made me, Ali, I love the fact that you, you defined the terms and, and mentioned the fact that there's different names for, for this classical education, liberal education, et cetera. And what the, to me, the dream would be, I would love for this movement to eventually, and I think it could eventually become this. It's just education. This is authentic. This is human formation is what it should be. All of this. We were all robbed. We were robbed because we were too focused on getting the great grades in a test-driven culture and taking the AP courses that don't promote great, genuine understanding of the topic and a love for the topic to go deeper and deeper into it. And we were robbed. So instead, we were, we were trained. And, and, to some, and in some ways, we were indoctrinated. And so if we could make that, to me, that's part of the dream is how do, how do, we, how do we replace what we have today and have a return to what is generally known as simply education. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right, we've got a little bit of time here for Q&A. Go ahead, gentlemen, back. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for being here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, so I had a question about um, the culture, culture versus classical education and the clash between those. Uh, growing up, I was able to uh, have the opportunity to attend from seventh to eighth grade a school modeled after Hillsdale College, the Classical Academy of Sarasota in Florida, had 50 kids in two years in the making. And then now I think it has five years later, um, about a thousand kids. And they are still full to the brim of all of these parents just wanting to join this school and have their kid experience classical education. So I think it's a great change, especially in the suburbs of Florida, to see that, especially as I go through my undergrad. My question to you is, with the culture shock of, um, of these students who are growing up surrounded by social media, maybe, maybe with a lack of religion, uh, it makes it really tough for students to resonate with reading books like the Iliad or with Plato's teaching with Socrates, especially with Aristotle. Um, how can we reach out to students who want to learn more, but don't exactly have the patience, especially around a culture that is focused on instant gratification, that is focused on not having the dedication to hard work as for most of the time. Um, how can we really focus on getting the next generation of Americans to embrace classical education? Great question. Mike, I was thinking about you, given your background in the tech space. Um, do you, would you like to take this one? Sure, the, the, the irony is, we live in a world where everyone is afraid their kid is not going to get technology, so we want to put iPads and everything else in front of them as early as possible. And as someone who, whose career has largely been in the tech industry, I, we, I just find this laughable because of the, the churn in technology over time. It's constantly changing. So why in the world would we be concerned about giving our 10 or 15-year-olds whatever the latest technology is at that point and think that that's going to prepare them for when they enter the workforce a decade later? So I honestly think that the, um, the, one of the great um, reasons why this education is so powerful is that it goes to the root of – it gets us back to, to virtue and the habits that we have, the habits of mind. Um, our habits of character. So 
So to answer your question directly, I would say, first of all, we've got to be the parents. We've got to get away from as much technology as we have. We've got to get our kids away from from the screens. So uh, video games are crushing the sense of wonder in boys in the same way that social media is probably doing it to girls. And I'm generalizing, and I know there are girls who video game, and there are boys that are on social media, but I think this is a real problem. Um, we're, we're giving our kids way too much tech way too early, and these are, these are addictive screens. And it, it, we're all addicted to this somewhat. So way harder on the little kid who's got it. So I think we need to do, we need to do our very best to limit their screen time um, and allow them to have to have fun again and go and play outside and do all the things that kids do. Um, in terms of getting them up to the point where they can read Aristotle, because I started with Aristotle and it was really hard. I had to like back up to remedial other you know books. But there are there are look before you read the great books, you should be reading the good books. There's a lot of good literature that's out there. That's probably more if your kid is being formed right from the beginning. They're they're going to tackle this stuff in middle school. And so they can get to some of the great literature in high school, but we have to ease into it. And there is a ways to e- there is a way to ease into it. There are definitely some books, such as Homer, that you don't want to start with, um, such as Plato's Republic. There are some dialogues you want to read before you get to the Republic. So I think there's an order to these things, and I think we need to recognize that that ordering. I would like to add that, as I said, the the tradition of Homer or poetry generally was oral. And so, as Michael said, we need to get off screens. We need to really detach our children so that they can recover some attention. And they should be read to. We should be reading with them as families and in classrooms and whenever possible. We should be encouraging conversation. The dialogues that that I've alluded to and Michael's mentioned of Plato, they are heavy-duty stuff, but fundamentally, they're about fundamental questions, right? Can you teach virtue? Can you transmit that from one to the next? Can you instill, what, what's the place of piety, since we've talked a lot about religion today? And how are we, in fact, to produce justice? The Republic, Plato's Republic, is fundamentally an educational treatise, right? And at the heart of it is this, this analogy, this, this metaphor, if you will, a parable of the cave. Think for a moment that the cave is a place where shadows, right, and imagery is being constantly given to the, the inhabitants who are slaves. They're, they're chained, right, to the screen, if you will. There's an irony that, of course, that we have now brought the screen back rather than bringing the children to the light. So we have to do our part to take them away from the screen, but to displace that, to replace that, right, with things that are vivid and, and alive. We need to bring them out into the sunshine. Really, we do. We have another question over here. Go ahead, ma'am. Thank you. I just want to make a quick comment. I, you know, I grew up in China, in communist China, and uh, I was once a political prisoner there for a year. Anyway, here's what I, you know, classic education. Well. In what I'm now serving on the Virginia Community College Board, so I'm having uh, I'm having debate with people on this all the time, and I said when society is in existential under existential existential threat or existential crisis, the most useful thing are not useful skills like computer or whatever. It's classic thinking. So what I realized, you know, in Virginia-wise, we had 65% of our high school graduate fail math and, uh, and, uh, and, 
and uh, English, which is the real crisis. I think our entire society is entering uh, existential crisis now if we continue our education like that. So is, is there any way for us to promote classic education as our sub civilization survival tools? It's civilization survival in my view. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, with that, we are out of time. We need to switch, switch over to our second panel. I'll begin by introducing Dr. Lindsay Burke, who is the director for the Center of Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, where she focuses on federal and state education reform, namely advancing education reform. She serves on the board of George Mason University and appointed by Governor Glenn Youngkin in 2022. I'd like to welcome her and the second panelists uh, up to the stage at this point in time. Great, well, thank you. And let's give another round of applause to the first panel. That was fantastic. Uh, really enjoyed it. And now I have the pleasure of moderating a second excellent panel. This is a panel on practical solutions. We'll integrate many more of your questions on this panel and, and hear what you're thinking in terms of how we can actually integrate what we heard in the last panel into uh, our education system today, how parents can really uh, take control and embrace classical education for their own families. So without further ado, I'll just go ahead and introduce each of our panelists one after another, and then we'll get right into to questions and answers. All the way on the end, we have Elmer Yuen, who is a former Hong Kong telecommunications executive and venture capitalist, and is the co-founder of Mission Hills Country Club, the largest golf course in the world. He's an advocate for the courageous and peaceful student protesters from Hong Kong. Yuan is the founder of the Hong Kong Free Beacon and currently wanted for subversion by the CCP for his vocal opposition to the national security law and his tireless support of true democracy and universal suffrage. To his right, is Representative Adrian Smith, who was elected to Congress in 2006 and represents Nebraska's third district. Since 2010, he has served on the Ways and Means Committee. Prior to his election to Congress in 2006, Representative Smith worked as an educator, real estate agent, and served his hometown as a member of the city council. He then represented District 48 for eight years in the unicameral. Jeremy Tate is the founder of the Classical Learning Test, which he launched in 2015 to provide alternative standardized tests rooted in tradition while taking advantage of modern technologies. The Classical Learning Test is a humanities-focused alternative to the SAT and ACT. Prior to founding CLT, Jeremy served as director of college counseling at Mount DeSales Academy in Cantonville, Maryland, he received his Bachelor of Science in Secondary Education from Louisiana State University and a Master's in Religious Studies from Reformed Theological Seminary. And finally, we have Rachel Kalm, who is a visiting fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Simon Center for American Studies and a visiting fellow in our Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. She writes extensively on classical education, covering topics ranging from classical education's remedy for America's loneliness epidemic to its preparation for an education in leisure. She holds her PhD in political science from Baylor University. Please join me in welcoming our panelists.
Great. Well, let me start with Representative Smith and uh, throw out a couple of questions. We'll start first. You know, there there has been a real groundswell in the movement for parental rights, parental empowerment over the past few years in particular. What do you think, especially after everything we just heard on the prior panel, what do you think is driving that momentum right now? Well, right now, I think it's a combination of things, but uh, COVID with uh, a lot of the uh, at-home in instruction online uh, invited parents uh, closer to the education of their children. Uh, regardless of, uh, of what uh, was previous uh, to, to COVID, uh, the fact of the matter is there was more attention being paid there. And, and uh, parents, I, I think, have, have expressed some concerns. Uh, and that looks differently in different parts of the country, in different communities and so forth. But... You know, the good news is that parents care. And I, I remember when I was student teaching and I uh, um, had parent-teachers conferences, first experience of, of my lifetime of that in, in that setting. And, and I remember uh, on the list, I had a, a student's parent coming in. The student was doing great. And uh, I thought, well, this will be easy. And the parent came in and their main concern was, that their, that their child was being challenged enough. That was a real eye-opener to me as a professional or aspiring professional at the time, but now looking at public policy and what are we doing to channel, I, I think uh, the most important part of education, and that is you know the parents' involvement in education, what are we doing to channel that? And it's not always resolved at the federal level, I might add, but um, parents, Caring deeply is such a good thing. Let's leverage that so that students can benefit from that the most. That's great. Thank you. And let me piggyback off that for a second, and then I'll circle back to you in a minute, a minute. But Rachel, so if we think about the idea that a parent is a child's primary educator, and I'm thinking you had just said, Representative Smith, that it wouldn't have been first of mind to hear from a parent, oh, my child's not being challenged enough. So you know, if we put that in context, a parent knows their child best. They know what they need. What's the history of that idea? Has that always been the case? Have we always trusted parents? Have we moved away from that notion? What can you tell us? Yes, thanks, Lindsay, and thanks to the Heritage Foundation and Divine Mercy Academy for hosting this wonderful event, an occasion to think about the practical solutions for the future of this movement. Um, I think the most practical thing that we can do to advance this classical education movement is to restore parents as the primary educators of their children, um, which is what school policies that several states have been implementing are doing. Parents know what their children need to learn better than any state or federal department of education. Um, and that's because education is not about a matter of programming machines, but a matter of shaping souls, which begins in the home and in the family. Um, and this is uh, this is a classical principle. This is a classical principle with roots in ancient, the ancient worlds of Jerusalem and Athens. Moses tells the Israelites to teach the decrees and statutes of the Lord. When he does this, he doesn't tell a group of Israelite teachers to teach these to their students. He tells Israelite parents to pass these down to your children and your children's children. Um, and that's because uh, to educate a child requires um, knowing that particular soul, which is to say that it requires love. And this is why in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, he says, 
He calls parents the cause of their child's rearing and education because parents have that firsthand knowledge and love. So this is a classical principle, but it's also a principle with American roots. The first um, law, American law concerning education passed in Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1642 had nothing to do with formal schooling. It recognized parents as the primary educators of their children and obligated them to give their children that basic literacy needed to understand the principles of religion. Um, we see this in the founding generation 100 years later. A couple of my favorite letters are between John Adams and John Quincy Adams in 1780. When John Quincy Adams was a 12-year-old schoolboy in France, he writes to his father, what should I be focusing on? Which subject should I be focusing on? And John Adams wrote back with this detailed curriculum directing him to um, direct his principal attention to the Greek and Latin tongues before turning to the more useful sciences. So we have this in our DNA, um, in our human nature. This, this principle is embedded in our human nature and in our American history that parents know best and that when you give them the recognize that freedom, classical education will flourish. That's great. And the Massachusetts law has a, a fun name, the Old Deluder Saint Act. So just in case anybody wants to look it up. But thank you. That's great. Well, um, Mr. Yuan, let me turn to you for a second. I, I could imagine that everything we've heard on the prior panel and just now is a little bit different than what one might be taught in China in the education system today. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, maybe compare and contrast for us? Uh, China is dramatically different. Uh, and we should not only talk about China, really should look at Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. And uh, um, we have classical uh, education too, for maybe over 3,000 years. And uh, 2,000 years ago, we have uh, gurus like uh, Confucius, and I'm sure you've heard of uh, Sun Tzu, the guy, the guy uh, wrote the book of uh, The Art of War. And there are about 100 of them in different fields, really very well educated. And, and uh, my father, for instance, they still went through classical education. There's no school. At that time, they have uh, tutors uh, and uh, family tutors. And uh, with, uh, the, maybe about 10 kids would sit around and they get educated. And based on those 100 uh, so-called masters, we learn from their books. And that's the old way. Until, of course, uh, the Chinese Revolution, the uh, dynasty got the, um, uh, it's about 1911. Then China go into the school system. We used to have imperial exams. Now we've got a school system like here, uh, primary school, high school, and universities. So we only had about, uh, had this Western uh, education uh, maybe like 100 years. And, but the most unfortunate thing is the communists came uh, in 1949. And they have different objectives. Mm. I left, uh, I, my last visit to Beijing was exactly four years ago. Uh, it was like autumn right now. And I went to a barbecue. I was invited by this Reform and Development Commission, which is like the um, CFO for China, for the, for, for the, for the prime minister. And I was working on a big uh, or pipeline project from uh, from uh, uh, North Pole through Siberia, Mongolia, all the way to China. Pipeline, a natural gas pipeline. So they invited me because it's a big project. <clears throat> they asked me, "What's wrong with Hong Kong? The kids, what are they doing in the street? You know, protesting. 
you saw there were one or two million people on the street. They asked me, what, what do the kids really want? And of course, I gave them my standard answer. I've been, I live in the States. I, I don't live here, but I've been working in and out of the States for almost 20 years. And also China for 25 years. I know the two countries very well. I said the kids want uh, uh, freedom, rule of law, and democracy. And there are 10 of them. And they stare at me. They couldn't understand. And their response is, all this is vain, V-A-I-N, vain, meaning not, re not realistic. That's the uh, reform. They are very high officials. Really, uh, it's a minister level. In the old days, we called them the Ministry of Planning. All right? And then they start this new name, uh, Reform and Development Commission. This is, this is, this is vain. I mean, what I mentioned, this, the three universal uh, value. And then I said, uh, Suddenly, I realized I'm 74 years old. Four years ago, I was 70 years old. I realized there's a huge difference between the West and the East. Uh, I was born in Shanghai. My family never taught me those three, three things. And I went to school, basically, uh, even though I went to Anglican school, but the teachers never mentioned such things, you know, the, the values. And then, uh, I, of course, go to church because of Hong Kong. But most people in China, they never go to church, right? And they shut down the church. So they have no church education, religious education. And then, uh, of course, they go to work. They don't, uh, uh, the, the, the police and the court, everybody follow the communist uh, order. So there's no such thing as justice or the, these things. And they never have an election. The one, the one billion or 1.4 billion people they claim never seen a ballot. So there's no such thing as democracy. So suddenly I realized it's a huge difference. And their idea of education, you are trying to repair your education and improve your education, but they have a different concept. To them, realistic means how they can increase their power. Right, personal power or communist power, or they can make more money for the party, for the whole country. This is their objective, very simple. So they're, they're, most of the students don't study history or what you're talking about, these arts and culture. They go to engineering, right? All the, almost 90% of the students come to this country, study engineering, go back, and they want to improve their uh, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, so and so forth, so that they can make their technology stronger and they can dominate. Eventually, uh, I mean, uh, imp improve, and then, and then they want to be better than, than the United States. And also, of course, not only technology, military, uh, uh, could be like an electric vehicle, for instance, and then, of course, they want to uh, help the country to make more money so they can dominate. The whole idea is they want domination. They want global domination. That's, that's in the communist doctrine. They want to do away with a, a capitalist, even small capitalists. You know, you, you are, you, you are you're buying stock. You, you are a small, small capitalist, and you are the, their enemies. This is the way they are. So I, I, I'm not really in the field of education, but I want you to know what you are up against, mm. all right? And 
they are pretty good. You know, uh, uh, Sasha, I uh, talked their latest uh, uh, EV. I mean, everybody is quite interested in EV. They have this BYD where Warren Buffett uh, in, invested maybe six, seven years ago. The cost of their EV, they're shipping now. It's, it's really the only competitor to Tesla. It's 6,000 US dollars, the cost. And this is very aggressive. And from where? This is the way they call realistic. They call realistic because I believe I'm on your side. But, but what they are doing could be very, very damaging. In the long run, of course, I'm sure we'll win. But we need to watch out what they, how much damage they can cause in short term. Well, Thank you. Sorry. No, no, that, that's great. And um, speaking of power, trying to come up with a good segue here, Jeremy, but uh, the duopoly of the ACT and SAT, uh, you have gone up against that over the past few years. Can you tell us about the classical learning test, what it is, and why all of a sudden it is going gangbusters, college after college is adopting it? Tell us more. Yeah, thanks, Lindsay. Uh, it's a big classical education movement. Uh, it's, it's our goal within that to kind of be the troublemakers of the classical ed movement. Uh, we exist fundamentally to pick a fight uh, with the college board uh, and the ACT. And um, you may say, well, why, why pick a fight with the college board? And I, I wanna just share a very quick story with you. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was working in a, a faithfully Catholic school. I'd, I'd spent 10 years in the public school arena, and I was shocked when I made this transition uh, to see the power and the influence of the college board. Uh, and this was a faithfully Catholic school. But essentially, everything we did uh, to, to compete for students with, o- with other schools, it was all connected to the college board. All of our marketing is you know, the average PSAT score, number of national merits, average AP score, how many AP classes we offered, on and on and on. And it really hit home for me when these, these sweet Dominican sisters, they introduced two classes. They introduced an intro to philosophy and an intro to Christian apologetics. And hardly any students signed up for it. And I was a college counselor, and I was talking to the students about, you know, why didn't you sign up for the philosophy class? This is, these are the greatest questions any human can ask. And the number one answer was that it wasn't any AP points. It wasn't any AP points. And I thought, this is crazy. We have got a left-wing organization, the college board, that essentially is calling the shots at our Catholic school in Canesville, Maryland. Um, and so CLT was really a crazy idea, but what if there was an alternative? And we realized that when we started talking to Thomas Aquinas College and Christendom and others, they'd been wanting an alternative for a long time. There just hadn't been one. And you know, I think, Lindsay, one of the few ideas that almost every teacher agrees with, and even David Coleman, the CEO of the College Board, he calls it a statement of reality, that at the end of the day, the tests do, for better or worse, drive the curriculum. And so the SAT, which has gone full board woke, literally putting Bernie Sanders on the SAT. I'm not making this up. They've admitted this, right? Fully compromised. Um, What if instead they're reading passages from Aristotle's politics? What if they're reading passages from Thomas Aquinas? Maybe Flannery O'Connor or C.S. Lewis in the modern age. We're putting beautiful, timeless texts that are worthy of a student's time and attention back on the test. Um, And we're having fun causing trouble doing it. Love that. Uh, that's great. Thank you, Jeremy. I see why uh, so many colleges are now adopting it. So that, that's great. Long overdue and welcome. Um, Rachel, let me turn back to you for a second on school choice, something that we teased earlier. But can you talk to me a little bit about the intersection between school choice and classical education, why the two need to go hand in glove? Yeah, thank you for that. 
So school choice programs, as you know well, um, can vary from, the take, take different forms. So there are traditional voucher programs, there are tax credit scholarship policies, um, there are education savings accounts, which is a mechanism that allows parents to access a private account uh, in which the state has deposited a portion of the funding it would spend on a typical K through 12 student in a district school into that account. Parents can then use that money to spend on education services, private school tuition, tutors, materials, et cetera. So what all of these different forms of school, po school choice policies and programs do is they return the uh, direction of a child's education to the parents and really re-empower them with that natural freedom, that natural right. And what we've seen as states have begun implementing these policies over the past decade or so, increasingly this past year, is that wherever a state recognizes that freedom of the parent, classical education flourishes. And that, why is that the case? That's the case because these school choice policies are realigning K-12 education in accordance with principles of human nature. First and foremost, that principle that the parent is the primary educator of their children. And, um, and so once, that, once the law recognizes that, parents not only have the freedom, but feel invited to assume that role and to, to become more involved in researching what curriculums does this school or that school offer? What books will my child read at this or that school? What format will the instruction take? And so as parents start learning about these different options, um, oh, at this school, my child will read Homer and Shakespeare. At that school, they might read whatever happens to be the bestseller in young adult fiction this year. Um, at this school, my child will engage in Socratic seminar. At that school, they might be in front of a tablet or computer screen, um, a lot more. So as parents start to become aware of these different options, they're interesting in classical education. Um, it's not a hard sell. It's just that a lot of parents don't know about this and have it, had it available to them. So uh, th this is why it's not surprising to me that we see when these states adopt these policies, classical, more classical schools open, classical homeschool co-ops, micro schools, all forms. That's great. And uh, because I can't help it, let me just tell you, school choice really has just taken hold over the past year. Rachel mentioned it a second ago, but even just this week, North Carolina, sorry, last week now, uh, North Carolina adopted a completely universal voucher program, which will be amazing, was just signed into law. They become the ninth state over the past year, give or take a few months, to adopt a completely universal education choice program. So really phenomenal growth in a short amount of time. So great to see. Incredibly. Yeah, it really is. So choices going great in the states uh, and recognizing that education is largely a state and local matter. Representative Smith would love your thoughts on what, if anything, you're thinking about uh, up here in Washington and uh, how we might sort of put that into context with what the states are doing as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm proud to uh, be the lead sponsor on the Educational Choice for Children's Act, ECCA. <laughs> that uh, I think is such an important component. It does not compel or require local entities uh, to participate, but it, it really is about parental empowerment. And uh, the, the way it's, it's shaped is to uh, require uh, scholarship granting organizations that uh, uh, would, would receive the, the tax credits basically uh, to ultimately help kids. I know that can be a controversial topic these days, but unfortunately, that's the case. But I, I just, um, I, I, 
I think a, a huge mistake that policymakers uh, make way too often is the assumption that if, uh, say, a family can't afford private school tuition, that somehow they're not making decisions in the best interest of their children. And I think we all need to be reminded that across the income spectrum, as mentioned earlier, it's the innate desire of parents to see their children do well and flourish. And so we constantly, in my opinion, we constantly need to be asking ourselves the question, what are we doing to empower? Now, I, I want to be very careful as it relates to the federal government's involvement, uh, because I having come from education uh, professionally, I, I never had a classroom of my own, but um, I'm very, you know, in tune of, you know, what I think needs to be done for quality education to, to achieve. And um, I might have some good ideas. That doesn't mean I put them in the form of a bill introduction in Congress uh, to, to say, here's what local classrooms ought to do. In fact, I think we need to step back uh, from the federal uh, standpoint uh, and, and really empower families, empower local school boards. When, when you look at uh, successful uh, operations in the public school uh, context, in my opinion, it's when school boards are making the right decisions involving parents and really looking at, at student achievement rather than just test scores, a standardized test score. You mentioned ACT, it, it triggers a little PTSD in my own mind. Um, and, and so there, there's just so much, um, that I, I think can be done to ultimately empower families, households, parents, and, and perhaps communities to, to be more involved. And I, I like to tell groups of students that their, their neighbors, uh, who incidentally are taxpayers too, but that, that's incidental to the situation, but the neighbors whose kids are grown or maybe never had kids are cheering them on. So there are so many, you know, uh, points of influence who want our kids to do well, let's make sure that the empowerment is, is in the right place. And so that's what I've, that's kind of the focus or the reason why I've, I've become involved. You know, th this happens to be tax policy. I'm on the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, but the results, um, uh, you know, I want to see at the local level, driven by the local level, driven by parents and, and the education community, that uh, incidentally, uh, uh, my wife and I, we have a, a five and a half year old too. And so that's a reminder to me of, of what's at stake uh, uh, for, the, for the future of our country, truly. And, and this discussion of school choice, just to go back to something Father Sirico said on the first panel, you know, families having to pay twice is quite a burden. I think we tend to not think of it that way, but absent choice, you have to be able to afford both your local property taxes, which in this neighborhood are pretty high, uh, and to also be able to pay private school tuition. And that is a, a tremendous burden. You shouldn't have to pay twice. So, And I might add that I represent one of the most rural districts in America. Uh, private schools aren't really an option, but uh, the bill that I've introduced allows, you know, homeschooling, you know, some curriculum expenses and and ultimately, you know, more options than just, you know, are you going to choose between pri private school and public school? It's about more than that as well. Thanks. So let me uh, throw two more questions to our panelists before we open it up to the, the audience. But Mr. Yuen, let me come back to you for a, a second. When Dr. Roberts kicked us off this morning, about what's at stake for American education, can you talk about 
maybe from your vantage point, what you think is at stake? Why is it that with a classical education in particular, instilling an appreciation for free expression in particular is so important? Sorry, can you repeat the last Yeah, sentence? just classical education, I think, gives families, gives students that basis to really be able to um, embrace freedom of expression, to, to really be able to uh, have those um, sort of free academic inquiry uh, debates, the Socratic method that it, it uh, enables all of that. So why is free speech in particular so important? What role do you think schools have to play in fostering that? I think we, oh, sorry. We really don't know what's going to happen for the next generation, never mind the future generations. So the, the kids, I have, six, I have six kids, you just have to leave it to them, what they want to do, instead of telling them what to do. So freedom is so important uh, in every aspect, their choice of what to learn and what to follow. And uh, a classic, I think, is very important because that's the foundation. Uh, I only finished half of my, uh, my speech. Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore, we still have classical uh, uh, Chinese education, and uh, which are very different. The student coming out from those countries, very different from mainland China where they exercise uh, communist education. It's a, there's no question. Uh, we have to follow tradition. And uh, uh, also, I mean, even though we are not, we don't have your um, Judeo-Christian uh, 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 tradition, but we have something similar. Otherwise, we can't last 3,000 years that long and with that kind of population. So there's some value in it. So. Uh, uh, I, I, I like your idea. Sorry, I'm not in the education business, but uh, uh, but the, I think we should do the same in the in the in the Orient. Uh, and uh, people, I mean, graduates from Japan, Korea, especially. You see how talented the Korean. I mean, in making movies, and Taiwanese are doing very very well. So uh, there's value in it. And uh, unfortunately, China, all they could do is copy, and then. Uh, uh, kind of, uh, I mean, this Marxism, uh, this whole Marxism is, uh, is uh, I mean, in the long run, they can't compete. Uh, we've seen that the economy is terrible. Yeah, thank you. No, that, that's great. Um, so before I open it up to the audience, Jeremy, let me ask you, could you just maybe quickly walk us through the differences between, on a practical level, the classical learning test and the SAT and ACT. If you were to do a, through a I don't know, two-minute crosswalk, what would that look like? Sure, yeah. The main difference is going to be source material. And so our problem with the College Board and the SAT is not just what they're putting on the test, which sometimes is just really boring, which is also problematic. They have these sensitivity committees. And the idea is that students shouldn't have to read anything that would be offensive or triggering to them. We take the opposite approach at CLT of a mark of an educated mind is the ability to read something that you don't agree with. So yeah, we actually have Darwin and Nietzsche and others on our test as well. The number one difference is going to be source material. But we're also uh, trying to beat the College Board and ACT in terms of just a better student experience, you know? And so remotely proctored, students can even take it from home. It's a shorter test, or it was. The College Board keeps copying what we're doing. We went to two hours, and they went, they, they went to two hours. So uh, shorter tests as well, and then, then better, kind of more user-friendly analytics uh, for students is the goal. 
I'm sorry, you said the SAT has sensitivity committees? Sensitivity committees, yeah, to, to make sure, you know, and, and look, I think this started with a, a good intention 25 years ago of like, let's say a, pair, a student's uncle committed suicide. You wouldn't want to have maybe a suicide on a passage or something. But I've met with people, Lindsay, from these, these sensitivity committees, and they say it is hilarious to be in this room where everything is offensive for some reason. So on the most important test, you end up literally reading passages about how yogurt is processed or penguins in Alaska, because like apparently that's the one thing that doesn't offend anyone at this point. Well, that is great on penguins in Alaska. Uh, we will open it up for questions. So just raise your hand and wait for the mic to come around. We'll go right here in the front to start, if that's OK. Hey there. Well, thank you so much for spending the time uh, to speak with us. I'm Jake. I work for uh, Senator Mullen on education policy. Um, and I, I'd like to hear, this isn't directed to um, one particular member of the panel, but uh, I see kind of a put a, a two kind of different pushes in the education space, one for classical education, forming character, forming virtue, and then also making students workforce ready or kind of STEM, career tech, this emphasis. So I, my question is, how do those two priorities, how can we kind of push for both so we get students who are workforce ready, but also virtuous. Yeah, I think if, if we had a dime for every time we heard college and career ready, we'd probably be pretty rich. So I don't know, Jeremy, you might be best positioned to take the first shot at that one. No, I, I think it, it does. I mean, classical education, the, the best argument for classical education is just meeting these students. And one of the great joys of, of the CLT journey for me is just touring these schools. And I am blown away. And Michael Ortner, when he was up, he gave a testimony of hiring, I, I believe, the students from from probably the Trinity School, I mean, they're, they're next level different. And so what they're doing is they're forming whole people. There's kind of this paradox or irony when education is designed at college and career readiness. In some ways, you don't even get that. But when it's aimed at the cultivation of the whole human person, the cultivation of virtue, they're amazingly employable at the same time. And I think it's been also part of what we've been able to do at CLT. We hire out of Hillsdale. We hire out of Patrick Henry College. And they've received this kind of education. They make the very best employees. Great. We saw another hand. Let me go in the back here. Yes, sir. Red tie. Uh, Representative Smith, um, <clears throat> on the the national level, a lot of the efforts on the on the national level are are directed toward tax policy. And but what about can things be done at the national level to uh, break the power of the teachers unions? <laughs> <clears throat> that is a major component. <laughs> um, I think it's parental involvement. We we saw that happen in the Virginia's, Virginia governor's race. That, you know, the dynamics that uh, many of you are, are familiar with, it, it's parents who, who showed up. And, and now, you know, most recent polling shows that, that Republicans are, are uh, trusted more as it relates to education. Uh, so I, I think, you know, that, you know, the, the, the fact that some uh, workers in, in public education want to uh, have their union and you know, that that's, you know, they have the right to do that. But we, we see the politics around, you know, the, the labor movement. I mean, the president going to Michigan this week, um, it, it's not to ensure that workers have a safe work environment and and, uh, you know, a, a pension solvency and so forth. It, it's a political move. And I think the American people are seeing this. Uh, and <laughs> they'll, they'll be facing the consequences uh, if this continues uh, much, much longer. Uh, but 
the American people are pretty smart. They can figure this out. They're very concerned, and that's why they're engaged as we speak. Yeah, and I'll just add that at the state level, these I think these state school choice policies are one of the, if not the best, weapons we have against the power of the teacher unions because it really returns that power to the family to choose where students go to school. And so these public district schools, once these programs are implemented, are no longer guaranteed a large number of students that have to go to their schools. So they're going to start having to compete against these other options. Yeah. Agreed with all of that. I would just add too, slightly symbolic, but I think important. The NEA, the National Education Association, is the only union that has a special federal charter. So we could start by getting rid of that. Um, let me go over to the left here, Father Sirico. One of the first things that we did uh, at Sacred Heart Academy was to reject the federal uh, lunch program. And the second thing I did was to remove the three public school teachers that were teaching in our classrooms. I found out when I went to their classrooms that they had removed all the crucifixes and the Blessed Virgin Mary was in the closet. Um, what kind of safeguards, Congressman, do you put in to the uh, readjustment of the tax code that ensures that the government then can't, under that guise, come in and somehow tell us what bathrooms we have to have or what uh, symbols or what curriculum we have to have, how, however it goes. Now, I know that the um, general uh, uh, regulatory apparatus of everything from water coolers and uh, door widths uh, can also be used to manipulate this, but the more obvious things seem to be direct funding um, how, how do you do this without uh, inviting the government to come in even slowly and get their nose under the tent? Well, H.R. 5 that we passed uh, earlier this session about empowering parents to, to be, you know, have access <clears throat> to what is happening uh, in, in uh, class. That's, that's in the public setting. And so I, I hear what you're saying on the private side, you know, if, if there's a, a nexus with the federal government, you know, what will the next step be? So I'm, I'm sensitive to that. And, and I think, you know, higher education, some opt out of any sort of, of uh, federal involvement. I respect that. Some accept that and, and can manage it well without losing their identity, without, you know, having to hand everything over uh, to the federal government. Um, I think it's incumbent on all of us, though, to remain vigilant at every step of the way. I, I, I think we all, we, we would be making a mistake if we as parents said, okay, I last I knew that that private education setting is just great. Um, I, I don't need to be involved. That's a mistake too. And so uh, if we focus um, on constant involvement there and you know a lot of the uh, school choice options that are out there require parental participation, and uh, that looks differently in different situations. Um, I, I also am, am concerned that federal involvement, oftentimes well intended, no child left behind, um, ends up chasing good teachers out of the classroom, the public school classroom. I, you didn't ask about this, but I'm interjecting this, and I hope that um, we can. And I and I tell teachers this: public school teachers who come in and you know they don't really like federal involvement in their classroom either. 
and I say stand strong on that position, don't um, say, well, okay, if you just give, it us, give us enough money. And, and so I think that circles back, though, to what, um, you know, the, these dollars floating around, we don't want that to, to cause a compromise on what is good policy, what is good practice uh, along the way. Thank you. Uh, let me go to the back, Meg, and then Delano, I'll come to you after that. Making you run around, sorry. <laughs> okay. Hi, just wondering if any of you um, know it, what the situation is like in Miami, as they they have um, at the, the Miami School Board in Miami Dade, third largest school district in the nation, I believe, is considering an option for classical education within their public school system. Does anybody have an update on that? I think we're due for a report in October, but can you tell us anything sooner than that? I don't. I'm sorry. Wait, somebody in the audience, no? Oh, <laughs> I thought you had the answer. We'll get back to you, Meg. Thanks for raising it. Can you run over to Delano? Yes, Thanks. I can. I have a um, two-part question, two related parts. One, um, how do you gird yourself against the inevitable criticisms that classical education is insufficiently diverse with respect to race and uh, gender and sexuality and so on and so forth. And then two, for lay people, um, and my wife and I, we, we use a classical home, a classical Christian homeschooling curriculum, but for the lay person, how would you define, what makes a book great from a classical perspective? And how can parents who may have their child in a different type of school um, sort of start to source great books for their kids to begin uh, reading? There's a great book that I'm almost done reading that just came out a few weeks ago, a volume of essays on liberal arts education, classical education. We've talked about these interchangeable names, but called The Liberating Arts. And it has several really helpful chapters on just how diverse the canon is. That they're, they're, um, just starting with what I know best is the American tradition. We have um, you know, great writings from Frederick Douglass that are frequently, if not always, used in classical education um, programs. Um, there are great um, Muslim authors who first read Aristotle and Plato before those texts made their way back to Christendom in the um, Middle Ages, um, Al-Farabi. And th these are great resources, perhaps for more like a philosophy at the high school or college level. Um, Jane Austen is a favorite of all students of classical education. So when you really start to dig, there's a wealth of text here. Um, there, there are the, the greats, the cornerstone greats, Homer, Aristotle, Plato. Um, but there really is no, I mean, there, it's hard to draw a limit to how many different um, texts can be included in this great wealth. Jeremy, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, just a quick comment, Delano. It's such a great question. I think one is, is insisting that journalists who want to write about classical ed also tour at least one school. That would be helpful. Um, and if they go to a school like Hope Academy in Minneapolis or True North in Florida, these are majority minority serving schools. And if you compare what they're doing, uh, with the local public school, it is night and day. Anybody with two eyes can see the, the fruit uh, of this kind of education for, for, for all students. 
Thank you. Yeah. Yes, Rachel that's a great I... point. And then just one more point. Um, Dr. Roberts mentioned in his opening remarks um, the fact that these classical schools can store, sort of be rooted in different traditions, different religious traditions and different cultural traditions. So I think that's also a, a great response to anyone who's concerned that um, this is too limiting or exclusive. Go over here. Jameson. I think this is probably a refreshing of a, a question from the earlier panel, but there seems to be people for whom when you talk about classical education, they just say, that's it. That's that's what I've been looking for. That's the missing part. And they gravitate, gravitate toward it naturally. But then there's this other group of people that kind of intuit that there is an existential crisis in our culture. Um, but they they think other things about classical education. It's elite. It's not diverse. It's old. You know, there's a lot of reasons why they argue against it. What's the bridge to those group of people that are winnable on the issue, but qu don't quite understand? I mean, taking them to the schools, Jeremy, I agree 100 percent. But are there other bridges to that group of people that that they're suspicious about classical education? Um, and I'm sp thinking specifically about a lot of parents. They want what's best for their kids, but when you when you when they hear about classical education, it just doesn't resonate right away for whatever reason. What are the bridges that we can reach those people who it's not just naturally, oh, that's the answer, that's where we should go? Sure, maybe just one quick thought. Is, Jameson, Jameson, this is probably the argument I've heard more than any other leveled against classical education over the years is that it's it's elitist. Uh, the truth is it, it is elite. It's the best kind. I mean, you can make this arguments against like a Tesla or a BMW, like it's, it's just too good. Uh, and so I, I, it's a hard argument to respond to because we're like, yeah, it's better. Like, <laughs> that's, that's the whole point, right? I think part of it is just that it's an unknown. And, and one of the real challenges and where a lot of tact is required is Teachers that have given their lives to, to, to students, and then 25 years in, they're being told that this is like a fake kind of education. It can be really hard when somebody tries to flip a school, as they did in the, the case of Sacred Heart Academy, um, and affirm all the good that's already happening, right? Affirm the good that's already happening, and sometimes maybe make, make the changes gradually over you know three or four or five years without ripping the Band-Aid off, off all at once. All right. Yes, sir. Since it was already brought up once, I'm going to put a plug in for homeschooling. And with all due respect to the, the congressman, don't wait for um, our congressman to give us money. Uh, get out there, and he's he knows. Um, uh, and, and something to what Mr. Ordner said earlier, you know, he said he felt like he was deprived of this education. Um, one of the best things about homeschooling is that you can get an education with your kids. Um, and 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 to the uh, the senator staff over here about you know, workforce ready, those sorts of things. You, you have staffers on the Hill that were homeschooled classically, that went to classical uh, colleges like New St. Andrews College or Patrick Henry College. There are two Supreme Court clerks right now who went to a very small private Christian university, classic Christian university, Patrick Henry College, 325 students. Um, and they have more Supreme Court clerks than Georgetown. Sorry, Georgetown. Um, but I, I guess my question is, and to put it, be an advocate for, for homeschooling, uh, to the gentleman from the CLT, do you see a difference between those kids who are taking the CLT? And by the way, good job on getting Baylor to get full ride scholarships to CLT, Liberty, uh, you know, Hillsdale, and, and the rest. Do you do you guys keep statistics on um, whether or not they've been homeschooled, classically schooled, uh, you know, uh, public schooled, those sorts of things? And, and how do they do if you do keep statistics on 
on those different very uh, yeah, variations. Sure. It's such an interesting data question. And so, so for the first five or six years of CLT, I would actually call the families after every test and say, congrats, like for the top three families. And usually it was a homeschooler and usually it was actually an independent homeschooler. They weren't part of any organization at all. And the first student to ever get a perfect 120, he said, I didn't know there were even grades. He said, all of life was learning and learning was life. And I read because I was curious and his parents fostered that wonder and curiosity. It was completely foreign, like even what mainstream kind of school was like. But from a data perspective, the homeschools actually cluster at two ends for CLT. They cluster towards the top. And also there's a lot towards the bottom as well, unfortunately. So the average score for our ACCS kind of students is higher, uh, but some of the off the charts kids tend to be on the homeschool front. Saw a hand, yes, ma'am, all the way in the back. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm a homeschool mom. I homeschooled our five kids, and then we also sent them to classical school. And I now am volunteering at a almost all black inner city classical Christian school. So I just had one comment and one question. And my comment was to the uh, man who asked about diversity. And one of the things that was so uh, mind-blowing to me was that I first learned any world history when I began homeschooling my kids classically. I had not in my apparently strong public school education learned African history at all, and we hadn't learned very much history about Asia. So I think one of the things that's common to um, classical education is learning world history chrono chronologically, and that is an enormous eye-opener to a lot of American families and students, I think. And that's to me, speaks to the diversity question. But I have another question about that, which is, do you think, this is for you classical educators, that we really are doing an, enough of a thoughtful job in making sure we are including, for instance, African-American writing in the classical curriculum. And I say that because I it's kind of a fixed thing and that you don't want to give up any of those supposedly dead white guys. Um, and you don't want to emphasize race as the most important thing about any human being because we know there's many more things that are more significant. On the other hand, now that I'm part of this inner city school, I do sometimes look around at this curriculum that I've always loved, that has just thrilled me, and thought, is there room for more African-American voices? Because it is so much a part of our American history. Great question. Anyone want to tackle that? I come more from the higher education background um, than K through 12 classical education. Um, so I'll just offer this, that the first time I was able to really dive into um, some wonderful African-American authors, was it an American political thought course? I think that's a great place. Um, it, it, again, I'm, I'm coming from an American political thought background, but I think that's a great place to include not just Frederick Douglass, but Booker T. Washington, W.B. Du Bois, Malcolm X. There are a lot of options there that they're crucial to American history. They belong right in the, they aren't add-ins. Um, and it's an opportunity for high school students and college students to discover those texts that are often and not covered in um, you know, your typical public school curriculum. And just one more comment here. Uh, a book that came out a couple years ago, which you may be familiar with already, The Black Intellectual Tradition, as uh, co-authored by Angel Adams Parham and, and uh, Dr. Nika Prather. Um, Dr. Angel Adams Parham is our board president at CLT. Um, and as a black intellectual, we wanted 
her to, her to have that role uh, to help us think through this question. But one of the things that's so interesting about the black intellectual tradition, this book, is that they're making a case that, that folks like Frederick Douglass, they weren't just fighting for access to just you know vague education. They were specifically fighting for access to classical education. It's all that existed uh, at the time. And so this really is a shared uh, intellectual inheritance. Um, but I, I'd highly recommend that, that book as a way to kind of get to that. Yeah. Well, so oh, and, look, could you wait for the mic? Oh, I'm sorry. Could you just wait for the mic to come around? So we're recording. I don't want to. Jeremy, could you just share with us the, uh, the, the deep process that CLT has gone through over the years to look at the reading list and to be very intentional about its quote-unquote inclusivity and yet the depth of real human uh, questions and you know, the great ideas that persist through the, the cultures. I think it's an important display of how universal classical education is. Yeah, Michael, thanks so much. And, and it's a, a bit of a landmine in the sense of, uh, you know, when you have that question at all, by some people, you're going to immediately be called like you're going down a, a woke path, right? Um, and so this has been a, a concern uh, for CLT for a long time of making sure that, okay, there's not too many places, maybe a place like Thomas Aquinas College or St. John's, where they're trying to kind of say, this is what the canon looks like. And at CLT, we have an author bank, two thirds of everything that we put in front of students is drawn from that author bank. And so when we have discussions about folks like, you know, Toni Morrison was, was a big debate, and there were a lot of very, very passionate people on both sides. Um, so what we're trying to do uh, at CLT is really be kind of a good ambassador for a movement that's a lot bigger than us, uh, and where you've got folks within the movement that disagree. But that disagreement's a good thing. And one of the values of classical education is that it provides a common ground. Uh, two of our board members, Cornell West and, and Robbie George, they've been doing this for, for decades of kind of touring the country and showing people, here's how you have a conversation with someone you disagree with, but they can do that because they have this shared intellectual inheritance that they both truly love uh, at the end of the day. That's great. Yes, all hands, yes. Yes, thank you. I, I work with uh, Ali Ghaffari at Divine Mercy Academy, and I was just wanting to address the previous question about how do we make that bridge to parents that, that either you know are hesitant to take the plunge and explore or send their child to a classical school or don't quite understand um, you know what it is. And I can say on the administrative side, um, hearing stories of parents that are fleeing the public schools and fleeing some parochial and private schools is heartbreaking. Um, we've had uh, parents that have come in with sixth graders that cannot spell and don't have any qualms about it because they're spell check and I don't need to know how to spell. We have fifth graders that are coming in that are struggling on simple math placement tests and get stuck on multiplication. And when we ask them, you know, um, don't worry, you, you know, do you need a little help? And they say, oh, you know, I've had multiplication before, but my teacher gives me the multiplication tables on a piece of paper next to me. There's no memorization in the school system anymore. Um, for schools that are struggling and for an entire generation that's been affected by COVID and that are having trouble with focus, we had a family that came in and told us that their child's tablets uh, just had Minecraft uploaded on it, a video game. Um, with school permission and with school money. Um, I, I find that heartbreaking um, from a perspective. But more so, I think to speak to people like Mike Ortner, 
who um, at, at the career level and human resource level is saying the fruits of this movement, not just in terms of an individual's ability to analyze, uh, be think out of the box, solve problems, um, and also have a great work ethic, have morals and ethics, show up early, stay late, complete the task. These are things I think in society that we're overlooking quite a bit. Um, and I can uh, perhaps refer to Ali, maybe to share from, a, uh, from the military readiness standpoint, uh, a personal story from the Naval Academy. Uh, would you like to share that story? Uh, so we have uh, one of our parents uh, is a uh, uh, Marine, 20-year uh, veteran, and he teaches at the Naval Academy. Uh, and he taught engineering there, one of the hardest courses at the Academy. Uh, and he said, um, you know, every year um, we have, you know, a lot of kids who can just pass the test, kids uh, like myself or Mike or whoever else who could play the game. But he said there were very few who he could throw a curveball to and could think outside the box uh, and could really kind of rationalize and get their way, uh, reason their way to something that wasn't just rote, plug in, plug and chug. And he said he found those kids were uh, tended to be either Mormon uh, or uh, homeschooled or classically school, uh, classically trained. Uh, and he said that was maybe three in every 100 kids or so that he found. And so the critical thinking was off the charts for those kids uh, that they found. And one other thing I would just add is uh, the joy that's present in these schools. So and Jeremy said, go into a school, and if you go into the school and you see the classroom and you see the joy in not only the students but also the faculties, uh, the faculty's faces and just the excitement they get out of the car and they just run into school because they're so excited. Um, that is, I think, all a parent really needs to see in order to be sold on this type of education. It's a great reminder. Time for one last question. Thank you. So my... Uh, I view classical education as the solution to the product problem, and I view school choice, specifically educational savings accounts, as the solution to the financing problem. As school choice grows, so we're at 10 states now, 10 out of 50, I believe, have universal school choice, and if it's you, come if on you count quickly. Indiana, it's 97%, but close enough. Great. So... And a lot has been remarked on um, it's, it's going to take time for more and more families to start adopting and actually taking, making use of these programs. So up until now, the public schools have been hardly impacted by school choice. But if we project out what could and should happen over the next five to 10 years, however long it takes, the public schools are going to start to really feel it. Their enrollment's going to start to plummet in some of these areas. And when we look at um, the thought experiment that I want to run by the panel here, including you, Lindsay, is so I went to public school. I feel for a lot of I, I, these students is 85 percent or whatever of the students. How do we help the vast majority of American students benefit from this? So when we look at covid, we saw one of the things that covid revealed to us was by the public schools largely staying closed for that whole additional year, not able to get their act together, when small schools that have way less money, such as the private school where we send our kids, were able to get their act together very quickly. Part of the problem of, of public schools is governance. So they're all reporting many schools, tens of thousands of students, their principal is not running that school. It's the superintendent and the school board running that school. It was, we learned this if we didn't know it already during COVID. So 
the the vision that I would love to put forward and hear your perspective on is, could we envision a future where every school is privately funded, I'm sorry, publicly funded through school choice dollars, but privately run? And by privately run, I don't mean as a for-profit. I simply mean as a what a typical nonprofit local school is run with their own board that's overseeing a principal and setting a mission and vision for that school. And that to me is the only way that these public schools will eventually be able to compete with all of these private schools and startups once parents are awakened to. Like I view this group here as sort of this is these are the early adopters of classical education. We're reaching 10% of students. At some point enough other parents will realize, oh my gosh, that's a great thing. I want that for my child. And it, that's how you end up reaching the masses and the, the public schools that exist. If there's an ESA program in that state, this could be their doom, but this could also save them if you allow them to, to essentially privatize and have their own local board. But I'd love, like Lindsay or any of the panel, I'd love your take on how do we get from here to there? Because that seems, that seems like a dream right now. Well, yes, and then a thousand times yes more to what you just said. I mean, everything you just articulated is what Milton Friedman articulated back in 1955 when he wrote The Role of Government in Education, when he said, yes, publicly finance K-12 education, but the public financing doesn't require government delivery of schooling. So separate the financing of education from the delivery of services, which is exactly what a school voucher, or ESA, or tax credit scholarship program. I'm with you on ESAs. I think this is the refined next generation of education choice. So like we said earlier, there now we'll count Indiana, 10 states with universal school choice, universal education choice. We hardly even call it school choice anymore because of ESAs, because you can do all of these other things besides pay private school tuition. But we're at this point where, I mean, every single kid in those states this year will have access if they want to private education choice. And that has, a year and a half ago, was not the case in a single state where it was universal. So this, this is a game changer in how we finance and deliver K-12 education. My, I, I'm an optimist, but I would say 10 years from now, I would hope that we've got universal choice in a majority of states. I would say every state will have some form of education choice 10 years from now. And I think that competitive pressure to tie it into Meg's question is exactly why we're seeing places like Miami say, oh wait, Maybe we should adopt a classical model within the public sector. It's that competitive pressure has caused change, necessary change in the public system. So with you 100%, every kid from day one should be funded with an ESA instead of funding institutions, fund the child directly. If you all have anything to add. Well, I, I just want to add that America is a big country. Like I said, I, I represent one of the most rural, and I, I even like to add remote uh, constituencies where there aren't a lot of options around. So we need to be mindful of, of dynamics like that. And, and also as a policymaker, I'm concerned about, you know, inner city uh, uh, situations where there could be families trapped in low quality education. I'm always mindful of that, even though that doesn't tend to be my constituency uh, that I'm elected from. So let, let's make sure that we don't become overly prescriptive, especially from the federal level. Uh, but that it's ultimately driven by families, you know, parents making decisions in the best interest of their of their children with achievement as the goal, uh, preparation, 
You know, I'm concerned when we, when we hear about unprepared students in, in some of the basics. I, I think communities across America are anxious to engage on that basis because uh, they, they've just seen some changes that they don't, they don't like seeing. Thank you. Thank you. And just to put a final note on that, I think it ties together with everything we've heard today because part of the reason we're seeing choice just spread like wildfire across the country is because parents want a values-based education. And I think there's a recognition now that choice enables them to access a school that aligns with their values. And so that has really been one of the driving forces, in addition, of course, to, to COVID closures uh, that, that we're seeing uh, all of this the success result from over the past year. So classical education, of course, provides that values-based education. So choice, like I said earlier, goes hand in glove. Um, for our public in-person audience here, we have Chick-fil-A, I believe, out in the foyer. So please enjoy lunch and mingle. But before you do that, please join me in thanking our panelists.